When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I don't know about you guys, but Christmas always makes me think of radium. <laughs> There's a reason, I promise. So a few years ago, uh, when I was researching, I don't know, something weird, as per usual, I found this amazing vintage advert for Thaux Radio products for Christmas. It's in French, and it's an illustration of a glamorous woman from the 1930s with a whole line of cosmetics containing radium. The picture is surrounded by a wreath. It's a Christmas advert, because nothing says I love you like radioactive skincare. Now, finding this advert really started my obsession with the history of radium. I've always planned to cover it for the podcast, but the stars really aligned when I met the brilliant Lucy Jane Santos, author of Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium. Not only is Lucy a lot of fun, but she is just as obsessed with the history of toxic cosmetics as I am, and that's saying something. So I had to get her on the show. In today's episode, Lucy and I talk about the history of radium cosmetics and also some of the early ill-advised cosmetic uses for x-rays. This conversation is so much fun, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, I am here today with Lucy Jane Santos, author of the brilliant book Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium. Lucy, oh my gosh, we are so glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is just absolutely so exciting to be with you today. <laughs> well, I think I'm excited. This is, gosh, this is one of my favorite subjects in the whole world, and I cannot wait to pick your brain about it. So let's start with the basics, though, because I know not everybody is like a radium nerd like I am. So you know, just to start out, what exactly is radium? Well, this is the fun bit because I'm a radium nerd, but I'm a radium nerd about how it was used rather than the actual sciencey bit behind it. This is the point where I say I actually failed science at school and things. I was not a good science student um, and I did come to it quite late in life. But I mean, so in half in my book half lives the unlikely history of radium i take that unlikely bit quite seriously but i do trace the journey of radium and i tr trace it through the discovery of the metallic element uranium in 1789 i talk about x-rays those invisible unknowable rays that were discovered by wilhelm Röntgen. um you know so mysterious that they named them x uh, then I talk about Henri Becquerel. So he is a, a, a French scientist, a genius, um, and he confirms that uranium emits invisible rays, um, which were called Becquerel rays, but then they get called radioactivity by Marie Curie. And of course, then I do talk about Marie Curie. So Marie Curie is a PhD student, and she's working with this substance called pitchblende, um, and she discovers that it uh, radiates more 
radioactivity more rays than could be accounted for by its known uranium source. Um, so really, long story short, she discovers, she isolates radium. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a new element. This And this is such an exciting discovery for her. She is a PhD student, and she finds two elements, uh, radium and polonium. And um, so this is really, really exciting stuff. Well, that must have been incredible to find something like that as a student. And and of course, it you know, everyone thought it was world changing and it was, you know. Um, so how was it studied? It's really easy for me to sit here and say Marie Curie isolates radium. I mean, she she put in a lot of work. I mean, the, the process to get radium and polonium from a pitch blend is it's really intense. I mean, this is a, a fractalization. She has to um, grind it, smelt it. Uh, I don't know, all these sort of processes to extract this minute amount of radium from the substance, uh, from, from pitch blend. But of course, once they've found that, the race is on to sort of discover what it does um, and what that's going to mean to the world. Um, because if one thing science likes is to is to get the discoveries and make them into something, uh, make it marketable, make it sellable um, and make it do stuff. So, I mean, again, there's lots of different researchers in lots of different universities around the world studying radium and finding out what it is. At the same time, they're studying the, the the process of radioactivity and, again, really, really simplifying it, mostly for myself. They discover that uh, it's changing all the time. So it's atomic disintegration. So uh, uranium changes. So it goes through this process of a disintegration and it changes and it changes and it changes. It becomes radium. It becomes radon, which is an invisible gas. And it carries on and carries on until it's uh, lead. And lead is sort of an, an inert substance. It doesn't change anymore. Now, as it's changing, they find that it uh, that through that process, it's giving off these rays, alpha, beta, and then they discover the gamma rays as well. So they're discovering all of these different things. And like I said, it's a lot of different people um, in lots of different places coming up with these with these ideas and and testing to see um, well to see what they can do with it as well. Um, so really, then that's when it starts going into the world of medicine, which is really, again, this world changing, uh, these world changing discoveries um, that really, really, oh gosh, again, really, really exciting times. Oh, my gosh, definitely. And then now right away in the book, you know, you make the point that although we're afraid of radioactivity today, a lot of substances like common substances are actually mildly radioactive. You mentioned like coffee and bananas. What else is radioactive? <laughs> well, pretty much everything in the world is radioactive. Um, I mean, just everything. It's simpler to. It's just simpler just to say uh, it's everything. At one point, when I was talking about this, I, I was paraphrasing um, "Love Actually." Uh, you know, like love is all around. <laughs> radioactivity is all around, but it always just makes me sound slightly insane. But yeah, it is. It's all around us. It's in the air that we breathe. It's the food that um, the food that we eat. Um, it is just everywhere. We are radioactive ourselves. Um, so it's really interesting. I find this period really interesting because people go absolutely well. Radium becomes so desirable um, and everyone wants radioactivity they want these radioactive elements and it's so different to how things are today when you know people don't want radium you know I, I talk to people and 
they come around my house and I say, would you like to see my radium collection? And do you know what? Most people say no. No. <laughs> no. They're just, they don't want to. Some people leave the house at this point. Oh my goodness. So what is in your radium collection? <laughs> Actually, this again, this is where I confess. Um, <laughs> most of the stuff in my radium collection is not actually radioactive. So I've collected a lot of uh, products that at the time uh, were either called radium because they were uh, associating with the, with the name itself to make themselves sound modern and, and exciting and advanced. Um, or they said that their products contained radium, but they didn't really. So this is this is sort of the intersection where I'm really interested in. It's not quite radioactive, but claiming to be radioactive. So a lot of the stuff I have isn't. However, I do have one quite spicy um, uh, piece of radium history, which is some radium makeup, um, which which um, I did get tested and does have a little bit of radium, um, not a huge amount um, and not a dangerous amount, really. Um, but certainly in terms of these products, it was one of the ones that had the most amounts in. Oh, my goodness. That's really exciting. Oh, wow. So uh, when I was growing up, I used to go around to all these antique markets with my, my grandparents. They were antiques dealers. And uh, one of my favorite things to look for was like antique makeup. You know, when I was like, you know, a little yes. kid, you like to play dress up and everything, but it never occurred to me that it would have kind of harmful substances in it. So I would buy it. And sometimes I would actually like wear it, you know, like in high school, like I had like these kind of like 1940s blushes and things I'd wear as like eyeshadow. And then one of my friends finally pointed out, you know, there's probably lead in that, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so I don't know if, uh, if I'd ever come across anything with radium <laughs> in it or not. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's interesting to collect, although, uh, dirty, sexy history does not recommend that you put it on your face. <laughs> so well, absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> not. The worst thing is, is I had also collected vintage makeup for many years. And, um, the first time I bought some radium makeup, um, it came in, you know, like a, it was a cardboard box, um, a round cardboard box uh, with makeup in. And it's got a, so you take the lid off and it's got a seal and all of that stuff. I don't know how I managed it, but I took this almost hundred year old, pristine, unopened box of powder. Um, and when I took it out of the tube and I opened the the lid, I put my finger through it, through the, oh, yeah. through the seal, straight through the middle without even thinking about it. I don't know. I don't know how I did it. I don't think it was deliberate, but I got, got a big plume of uh, of dust, of powder in my oh. face, which then I found out was radium powder. Oh, no. <laughs> so I have actually snorted radium. Oh, dear. <laughs> we don't recommend you do this either. <laughs> no, no, no. Please. Yeah, it's a ridiculous thing to do. And it was a complete accident. The only time ever I've done that. And it was by accident, um, oh unless I have some sort of weird death wish. Um, For sure. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I wanted to become, like, a, I don't know, a radioactive superhero or something, or a super villain, more like. Um, oh, yeah, I got a full plume of it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Mm. So if, if you do end up being a super villain, well, we want to hear all about it, because that sounds <laughs> kind of awesome, actually. <laughs> oh, it was God. a few years ago. I think it would have probably taken by now. I don't know. Mm. But then I would say that, wouldn't I, if I was still maintaining my uh, cover and all of that stuff. Yeah, you, you've got like a secret layer in a mountain somewhere. <laughs> For sure. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> oh, God. So, you know, we're already starting to talk about some of these products, and this is like the most fascinating side of it to me, I got to say. So how did this commercial radium market come about? How did it go from being kind of 
in the labs to being like in the department stores? Um, well, again, cutting uh, cutting a long and complex story short. So radium gets discovered. And then because x-rays are already known at this point, and people know that x-rays burn the skin, radium starts getting used in hospitals in a similar way because radium salts are also found to burn the skin on contact. So this is the idea here is that you're going to burn off uh, skin disorders burn off surface tumors as well. So wow. this this starts getting into the hospitals um, and there's lots of experiments and it's, it's, it's really exciting. This is cancer treatment in a way that hasn't been done before because normally uh, you can just cut out a tumor that's your best option. That's that's not nice. That's uh, bloody. It's messy. It's dangerous. The idea that you could burn it off cleanly and maybe save someone's life is really exciting. Okay. Um, but then that's not all that's happening. So you also get I said um, that uh, uh, uranium transforms into different substances and after radium, it transforms into radon, which is this invisible gas, this invisible radioactive gas. Now, scientists and uh, people in hospitals were finding out that if you um, inhaled that gas, it could do good things inside. So it could help, um, very simply, it could help uh, if you had uh, really sore throats, um, you know, this would help you. So these sorts of experiments are happening, again, all over the world, and lots of people are trying lots of different things. I mean, it's unregulated at this time, it's untested, so people are trying lots of different things and seeing what works. Now, because um, radon gas and very small amounts of radium salts were um, finding success in the hospital setting, um, and also in the spa setting as well. This is one thing I have in my book is that um, people were using these in water spas, like um, in the UK, uh, in Bath mm. and Buxton and Harrogate, um, all over mainland Europe as well, and in the US as well. So they were in Saratoga Springs, for instance, they were using these mild radium therapy, it was called, so this inhalation. So really that started in those settings and then they started selling these products and then other entrepreneurs started selling these products as well. So you could start getting them in drugstores, for instance. So this is how it started getting in. Um, now, again, it was a wide, in a time when you don't really know what something is doing, pretty much anyone can claim that they're using this product and it's going to be successful for some reason or other. So people were saying things like, well, if it helps laryngitis or throats, if it helps uh, skin disorders, maybe it can do other things. So then we start getting things like where it comes into the beauty, which is the biggest industry really of this outside of, uh, you know, health. Um, you start getting things like oh, one of the first products is hair tonics. So both in the US and in the UK, hair tonics start going. And these are like uh, liquids that you rub onto your balding scalp and it promises to promote, you know, luxurious hair or it gets rid of dandruff or it even changes your um, hair color. So there's these claims that if you use these particular products, you're going to change your gray hair back to its natural, normal color. I saw um, that. I thought, do I need to try yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> they sound fantastic, don't they? I do have some empty bottles. I don't have the real stuff. <laughs> um, but again, it, it's this idea. It's this idea that a little bit of what's bad for you is going to uh, cure. So this is often at the root of lots of beauty and health products. A sort of hormosis type idea. Mm. Um, that if something triggers, I mean. 
we can go back arsenic for instance arsenic is a poison everyone knows that but it was being used in a health and beauty context in the late 19th century because it was saying that well if it's if it really seriously damages you if you have enough of it if we just have a tiny tiny little bit mm. perhaps it's going to be beneficial that's right <laughs> arsenic collection yes. wafers exactly yes mm-hmm. and things like that do i mean arsenic does actually trigger um uh, the capillaries in your in your under your skin it triggers them so they get a little red so you get this beautiful little flush yeah yeah i mean it's 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 not good but it right at the short just at the, that time that you've taken it if you just take a little of it arsenic apparently does work and it's the same with radium um radium does actually work if you have a tiny tiny little bit of it and you're very um very flexible what the definition of the word work means in this context mm-hmm. it can give a little flush it can make your skin um a clearer as well it can just stimulate your metabolism just for a short amount of time and people saw that and people then started developing products to take advantage of this very short term but fairly apparent benefit wow so what were some of those stranger radium products sold? Uh, I did see you mention Nutex radium condoms, and I was a little concerned. <laughs> uh, that's one of the ones that comes under the category of not actually radium. So Nutex was a company in the 30s and 40s, if I memory serves, um, and they sold condoms, and they had a whole load of uh, different brands that they sold. Um, there's, I did find a website years back that had lots of them. And I, I think I lost count at like 30 or 40 different named products that they had. Um, I mean, I think in terms of condoms, we still, uh, like, a, 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 I'm a bit cautious about saying any names because it might not translate to the US audience. But, you know, there's lots of different names for condoms under that sort of Durex brand or, or whatever it is. And Nutex Radium condoms, they were just using the word radium because radium at this time was a sort of signifier of, um, oh gosh, it's a word I can't say, being virile, virality, if that's a word, um, or vitality or sexuality or, um, you know, being quite manly. Mm-hmm. Radium becomes associated with vigor in the 30s and 40s. So they're using that uh, to give this impression that somehow those condoms are going to be... Um, almost a, an aphrodisiac in some way isn't it you know it's like I'm so manly I use mutex radium condoms <laughs> <laughs> speaking of super villains that, that makes me think of something you find in Spider-Man I don't know <laughs> oh well, dear. it probably was to be fair I mean <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of bad ideas on your blog uh, you talked a little bit about radium corsets now why would anybody think that putting radium in a corset was a good idea <laughs> well radium corsets so there's not just radium corsets there's radium um all sorts of um body products uh radium chin straps radium uh forehead straps nose straps um basically you can wrap anything in radium or a radioactive um drenched substance um so radium corsets corsets um now this is um, by a product uh, by uh, they're called Radiant Radium Corsets, um, and they're around about the 1930s. Now this is a radium impregnated fabric, and again they're very very uh, imprecise about what that actually means. And 
whether or not it was actually radioactive is not known. I suspect not. Um, but what they were trying to insinuate is that their products would um, slenderize you. And how they were saying that is it was through this sort of um, stimulation of the metabolism. So you would wear their product and somehow it would stimulate your metabolism and it would uh, slenderize you and it would make you look better. Now, uh, radiant radium corsets, they're actually using this, um, uh, I can't actually remember what name it is, but this brand new fabric that had come out, which actually was slenderizing you. So it was a better than a, a better product than they'd had before. But they were sort of claiming that it was something to do with radium rather than uh, claiming, you know, what the reality was, which was it was just a better product than other things on the market at that time. It's using the idea that radium is doing something secret, it's something magical. And um, we all know how that we all know, you know, looking at adverts today about makeup companies and they they put names of products uh, names of miracle uh, substances and none of us really know what it means but it sounds exciting it sounds good it sounds like if you're going to put that on your face or on your body it's going to help in some sort of magical indeterminate way and somehow that makes you trust it more than if you knew exactly what the product was um, and I think it's no different from that really. Right. So from the perspective of like, like a woman in the 1930s, this is going to seem like some kind of new age miracle substance, right? Like the kind of thing that you find on like goop now, like, I don't know how it works, but Gwyneth uses it or whatever. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting to think about like that. Because of course, they weren't afraid of it. It just seemed like, oh, this is everywhere. It's awesome. It makes you glowy when you put it on your face. Um, so speaking of cosmetics, <laughs> So it became hugely, hugely popular in the beauty industry. They were putting it in all different kinds of things. So what kind of beauty products were they using it in, you know, actually, not the ones that advertised it and just kind of said that it was radiant? <laughs> um, again, it's, it's really difficult to um, know exactly which products did actually use radium <clears throat> or radioactive substances. Now, we do know that there was... a. Uh, Beauty salons, for instance, in the 20s were marketing um, a face mask that was a radioactive mud. Um, now, as far as I'm aware, none of this radioactive mud in big gloopy pots exists for people to test. I've never seen any. Um, and even if they could test it, a lot of these products were using radon, as I said. Now, radon has a half-life um, so that the amount of time that the radioactivity takes to sort of completely poof and disappear of only a few days. So that's long gone now. No, we don't So, know. We um, don't know. yeah, so the products that I've got that, I mean, there was one of the hair restorers, Frederick Godfrey's radioactive uh, antiseptic Renair hair tonic. It had a really long name. Now, I, I know, we know that his factory um, was at the base of a, of a river of a, um, in in um, Buxton in, in the UK. Now we know that at that time, that uh, body of water had been tested for radioactivity. And we know that his factory was there. So it's very likely that he was using the water from that spring water from Buxton. Um, now again, half-life of any radioactivity in that water has long disappeared. So I've got several uh, bottles that have got sort of a dried up content, but even if I tested them, you know, it's not going to be there anymore. So it's, it's um, really hard to tell. 
it is really hard to tell. Now, the ones that used radium salts, like, uh, for instance, I know that your audience won't be able to see, but I will show you for excitement. <laughs> so I've got this. Um, I'm showing a, a, a bag that has a um, hazard sign, a radioactive hazard sign. It says, caution, <laughs> radioactive material. Now, this is the product that I talked about earlier that I put my finger through and inhaled. Right. Um, and this is Thoradia powder. So this is uh, made with radium and thorium. Now, we know that they actually were using radium salts for this. Um, it's been tested. There are small amounts of radium in it. Um, we also, so this was a company that was based in Paris, France in 1933. They started uh, making these products. We know that they were doing that. Um, and like I said, it is in there. But other than Thoradia, we, I haven't seen any other evidence that these products were actually being used. There's another product called Radior, um, which was in the UK, but also um, they had a, a factory in New York as well um, from 1918. I think they were using radium, um, but as far as I know, no one's ever tested it. And the only time that I've ever seen a pot of it um, on eBay um, that was full, someone paid huge amount of money for it and it wasn't me um, <laughs> and it's a bitterness that I will never ever get over um but yeah again I, that as far as I know is the only one I've I've never seen another pot of it so this stuff is quite rare um that's the other thing um once radium stops being a miracle product and something that people get a bit scared of people tend to chuck it away um, and so it's quite difficult to get your hands on on radium products um, on the whole, um, especially beauty products, because people are just just chucking them. Um, and also these are sort of ephemeral things. I mean, we don't I mean, apart from beauty nerds, we don't tend to keep our props of, of products, do we? You know, you use something, you don't like it, you chuck it. You like it, you use it, you chuck it. You know, um, this isn't stuff that is always very easy to get your hands on. Right. Absolutely. But it was so popular and in and, and all different kinds of ways. So you mentioned in the book, now this really stood out to me. I thought it was so funny. Um, you mentioned that it was even assigned to a wedding anniversary, like a paper, silver or gold. Like I remember as a kid, you know, my local drugstore used to hand out these little cards to remind you what kind of gift was assigned to which anniversary, you know, like, oh, it's the linen year. So I don't remember seeing radium on there. Uh, do you know what anniversary no. that was? It was the 70th anniversary. And again, wow. 70 is a rare. <laughs> <laughs> so it was being uh, the point I th so this is around about the early 1900s when it when there was such a thing as a radium anniversary and it was the 70th anniversary so that, that was they were using the word in the sense of being something rare and valuable rather than suggesting that 70 years of marriage is somehow radioactive or anything but they were no. using it because at the time it was the most expensive substance in the world this radium is so rare um, so hard to to isolate to manufacture to get your hands on in the early 1900s that it's just it's it, it's I I don't I don't even know what a substance is that is similar now but it is so so rare um I haven't been able to trace when it actually falls out of usage um I sort of found a few and, it, and I don't think it was particularly popular usage I haven't found that many examples but enough examples to make it make me think that it was definitely you know uh, 
a thing rather than just one of those things that you sometimes read in the newspaper that one person says once and never says again and you know kind of like now when someone uses a t- someone's tweet and says oh this is evidence that x means x or something right um so I don't know when it finished but it was I think it was around about the 30s that any usage of the radium anniversary uh start you know it falls out of out of usage Wow, that's incredible. So if you make it to, to 70 years, you should give each other a radium. Uh, <laughs> again, we do not recommend that you do. <laughs> so of course, it was so, so popular. But um, obviously, we kind of found out that it actually has some negative side effects as well. So what does radium actually do to the body with with long term use? Well, bad things is the is the <laughs> simple answer. The short answer. I mean, <laughs> People knew that radium was dangerous from the from the get go. So um, there's lots of stories about. So uh, radium gets uh, isolated in 1898, um, and by n- well, minutes after that, they knew that it was a dan- It could potentially be dangerous stuff. There's lots of stories in uh, early 1900s, 1901, of people carrying around little vials of radium in their pockets and it burning through the fabric and burning their skin. Oh my god! Yeah, but this is how it gets used in medicine because that's how they discover that it burns the skin, um, and then you know, with the with the endless optimism of science and medicine, they're like, "Oh, if we harness this, uh, we can use it for good. We can use it to to treat cancer. We can use it to treat skin disorders." Um, so it was completely known right at the beginning that it was dangerous, and it was also known that it couldn't. The controls needed to be used. So we get people like uh, Thomas Edison, for instance. He's messing around with X-rays and radium in the early 1900s. Um, he gets scared off because one of his assistants is demonstrating X-rays to the public, um, and his assistant, um, his skin starts flaking off. Um, he's in terrible pains, and, and eventually. Um, he has to have uh, part of his, uh, I think his arm is amputated. Um, So even straight away, people are knowing that that if you're using x-rays, if you're using radium too much, you're going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, So they start thinking about ways of um, being able to uh, protect themselves. Um, But again, in this really experimental period, no one knows exactly what's happening. So again, it's it's really, really difficult. and then it starts getting co-opted into these consumer products. And, and really, you know, this is sort of, I don't know, the wild west of of, of science in, in uh, consumer products, isn't it? People are just trying things. Um, people aren't keeping records. And it's really, really uh, difficult to know exactly what's going on. Now, there's one big case in the 20s, um, which really sort of solidifies what is happening to people. And that's the case of the, of the radium girls um, who are dial painters who are using radium paint because, I mean, we haven't talked about this, but radium glows in the dark. If you put a little sticky substance on it, um, you can make radium paint so glow in the dark paint um and this is something that you can put on watch faces um and it was being used in so many different places um so these these girls and in, in the factories particularly in in america um north america and canada were spending all day using this radium paint they were painting hundreds of dials and and 
and a, a fair few of them, in de uh, depending on which factory they were using, were actually pointing their brushes, so licking their brushes yeah. um, and ingesting uh, paint as they were doing so. So this is this is the point where people really start understanding what's happening because these girls start dying um, and they're dying in a horrible, horrible way. Mm -hmm. And this is when it also starts getting documented as well, because really you do need to have these things documented properly to start seeing patterns, to start seeing understanding, um, start understanding what's going on. And suddenly you're faced with a lot of people in the same area all dying from this same um, same disease, it's it's when you really start to see what's going to happen. These are no longer isolated cases. Right, absolutely. So was there a backlash when when that started to happen, when people started to see that, that it was killing people? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> there was, I mean, one of the biggest issues for radium consumer products prior to the to the, the radium girls was this fear that um, they wasn't there wasn't enough radium in their products. So there was always a push for, if you said that your product was radium, there was always a push um, that you actually had to have radium in it. Um, once the radium girls start dying and that starts getting publicized, I mean, this is in newspapers all over the world. Um, you know, these are front page newspaper um, reports about their, them dying and also the court case afterwards, because. Um, not a few, a few of them die and then their relatives and also the people who are still really ill um, take the, the businesses to court. So this is all front page news. Now there is a little backlash, um, but, 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 but there is also the complete opposite of a backlash because you start seeing in the late 20s and early 30s even more radium products being um, produced. And that was one of the the most surprising things that I found in this research, I had really assumed that there was the case of the radium girls. There was also a man um, who, who drank a product called Radithor, um, and he died in 1932. I really thought that those two cases would, would was the end of radium products. But actually in 1933, there's a huge amount of others that come out. Wow. So it doesn't really ever, it just doesn't stop. <laughs> you know there's, there's again I I find it absolutely fascinating they sort of changed the emphasis on it so by 1933 there's a sort of idea that yes we know radium's dangerous in the wrong hands but our hands are the right hands you can trust us so that's sort of the the, the backlash there is that doesn't get it doesn't stop it's just the way it's marketed changes um we also see less of a, a less use of the word radium and more radioactivity mm. um and you know uh, i've talked about the radium corset and things like that they start talking about radioactive substances rather than just radium itself um again i find that really really interesting the attempts of these of these companies to um carry on with what they're doing, but also in a much more controlled way um, and using using it as a marketing tool to sell more of their stuff. Um, you know, it's quite cynical. Um, yeah. <laughs> one of the things that I said in my book um, is that a lot of these people genuinely believed in what they were doing. I mean, of course, there's swindlers, there's con artists, there's quacks, there's all those things. There are quite a few people who genuinely believed that their products were helpful and they genuinely believed that they had the answer 
to how we can control radium um, and how we can control radioactivity. And I think there are certain parallels here to the use of uh, nuclear now as well. So nuclear energy and nuclear power, it depends whose hands it's in um, as whether it's safe and trustworthy and all of those things. So people are just testing the boundaries of, of, of what you can do with these substances, what you can do with these dangerous substances, but ultimately concluding that they are the people who can control them. Yeah, it uh, it takes a lot of balls to claim that. I mean, I I can understand like how how someone might kind of think so, but I don't know. I don't think I'd risk it. Unfortunately, I, I guess nobody's made nuclear face powder yet. At least not as far as I know. <laughs> oh. No, but th there's a there's a great advert from the 1950s um, for a product called uh, Dorothy Gray, uh, Dorothy Gray uh, Cold Complexion Cream. Um, and they are they actually use radioactive dust and they put it on the face of the model. Um, and the, it's a TV advert, so you can actually see this. So they put this radioactive dirt on her face and then put a Geiger counter on it, you know, across her to show and it goes beep, 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 to show that it's working. And then they use their cream and they use their competitors' cream. Um, and obviously their cream is the only one that completely removes that radioactive dust from, from the, the model's face. Oh. So yeah, <laughs> still playing fast and loose with safety at this point, even if oh it's a slightly God. different emphasis. I mean, it's the 50s. This is, you know, Cold War. This is time of nuclear, nuclear fear and stuff. And mm -hmm. essentially their advert is saying, even if an atomic bomb goes off in your vicinity, you'll be able to moisturize and cleanse your face with our product. No worries. Because <laughs> that's what you're going to be thinking about, obviously. Oh, my God. Talk about a bad gig. And at the time, what, yeah. she probably got paid like $10 for that like <laughs> I'd love to be able to trace who that that the uh, actress or model was but I don't think I don't think that's come down in history unfortunately but yeah wow. uh, but we can all sit there and watch her I mean again it may not actually be radioactive dirt <laughs> that's certainly what they said it was sure sure well hopefully it was just normal dust or something else <laughs> mm. Oh my goodness. So how did it kind of come out of like common usage? If if the radium girls wasn't enough to get people to take it off of the market and they continue to use it, how did it stop? Well, there's two sort of things. It partly falls out of fashion. Um, after 30 odd years, uh, any miracle substance, people are going to get a bit bored with. Um, a lot of those products that you know, by the sort of 40s, you start seeing the, the adverts for these products that were all brand new and exciting in 1920. They're now saying, oh, two, three generations of people have used our products. It's it's grandmother stuff, isn't it? You know, oh, yeah. The, yeah, no one wants to use the stuff that smells like their grandmother. Um, <laughs> I, I do, but, <laughs> you know, like you, you want the modern stuff, you want the new stuff. So it starts falling out of fashion. It also starts becoming really hard to come by. I mean, it was hard to come by. Uh, in the 30s, there's a bit of an explosion of radium, as it were, um, and it starts getting found in more and more places. So there's there's quite a lot of it. There's a glut of radium, which is also why you start seeing a lot of radium products in the early 30s. There's just a lot of it. Um, but as we head into the 40s, as we head into um, times of atomic bombs and secret Manhattan projects, um, radium is just taken off the market. Um, you're not allowed to use it anymore. It becomes a controlled substance in most countries. Um, so it just sort of poof, simply starts disappearing. Um, and when it does, 
when you do see it, it is usually on sale in a department store. You know, like they've got a, a bargain bin of it. Um, so you start seeing sort of bargain bin radium products, you know, <laughs> huge amount for $1, that type of thing. But you don't start getting companies that are really, really uh, using it and new companies using it, new companies launching new products. It's sort of the old products um, that have just been used for 20, 30 years at this point. That's wild. So it wasn't even like a protection thing. It was just kind of fell out of fashion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was not able to pinpoint a day, you know, like a, a year or a day or anything. I mean, uh, in 1933, the American Medical Association finally say that radium isn't safe for internal use. So that's in a health context. Um, in the late 30s, in, be in the beauty consumer protection, um, uh, not industry, but, you know, in the late 30s, you start getting a lot of interest about protecting consumers from the stuff that's in their makeup. Mm -hmm. um, and radium is mentioned at this point. But again, it's 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 not really the baddie. You know, so there's not really any point, especially for makeup, that I can say, yes, that was that was when it was taken off because it just wasn't. Yeah, like unlike other products. So, you know, like if you look at arsenic or thallium or something like that, it's much more easier to pinpoint a time when it wasn't, you know, when someone said, hang on a minute, let's all agree not to use this. Radium, not so much. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. So another one of the advances that uh, you mentioned was x-rays. So x-rays coming out of all of this fantastic research. So we know that they're essential to modern medicine, obviously, but um, they had some stranger kind of early uses. So what were some other things that they were using x-rays for? Well, yeah, x-rays are hugely exciting. I mean, we all grow up with the idea that you can see inside your body. Someone can see inside your body and see what is in there and what is wrong with it, whether that's a bullet or a broken bone. But the idea that, you know, in 1895, uh, 1896, when it starts really being used, um, that you can see inside your body, that doctors can see inside your body and, and diagnose, I mean, it's just... I find it mind blowing to think how how mind blowing that was at the time. Must be so incredible. of course, yeah. But you start seeing straight away that people are so astounded that they are um, trying it on everything. So you start seeing this entertainment aspect. So uh, Thomas Edison starts um, a few days after X-rays is discovered. Thomas Edison has built his own X-ray machine. Essentially, he then <laughs> licenses it and sells it. I mean, uh, Wilhelm Röntgen. Uh, wasn't um he he never sort of uh patented his his x-ray machine the the machine that generates x-rays he never did anything to protect so very soon afterwards you know anyone with the anyone that was interested could kind of build their own so thomas edison does it straight away um, and he starts going out on the road with it because Edison is this flamboyant showman who wants to make money, essentially. Uh, so he goes on the road with his X-ray machines and 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 show, uh, does demonstrations for hundreds of hundreds of people all across North America. Um, you start getting things like there was some at some point the X-rays were going to be used for customs as well to see what people had in their bags if they'd swallowed anything. So that starts straight away. And um, the medicine aspect of it as well. So diagnose, diagnostic to see inside the body, but also therapeutic. So the idea that x-rays will burn your skin if they're trained on you, 
and that starts being used for all sorts of things, uh, cancer, uh, tumor re tumorous removal. Um, there's an awful story of um, people attempting to skin whiten. So there's this awful case of, um, of I think it's five or six African-American men who were um, had x-rays trained on them with the idea that this would lighten their skin. This was, oh, this no. was considered to be, you know, a new sort of technology. Uh, we also see quite early on um, x-rays being used to remove hair as well. Um, so you know, if you uh, if you burn off your skin, you're also burning off your hair, essentially. So we start seeing x-rays being used in a beauty context for hair removal. So this is in your arms, legs, face, anywhere that you want to. Uh, these x-ray machines are being marketed, um, not necessarily under the, under the branding of x-ray. They use all sorts of other words as well but there's there's all of these x-ray machines in beauty salons across north america canada and, and europe uh, primarily and they're just burning off the of the hair and the skin of 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 these women um and yeah it's at the time there was quite clearly i mean some of these operators only had a few weeks training and um, so there was lots of reports of people being burnt um by the x-rays at the time uh, sometimes it would just be a reddening of the skin. Sometimes it would be really, really serious burns. Because oh. um, again, they didn't know how long to how long to train these X-rays on people. It was sort of until it hurt was the sort of um, the the safety guidance at that time. Um, and it wasn't until the nineteen fifties that someone did a systematic study and found um, and studied. Uh, I think it was like thirty people who'd gone to uh, operators and had X-rays either for hair removal or uh, uh, cosmetic removal. You know, like a, a mole or something like that. And so many of them had, uh, you know, gone on to develop tumors, had gone on to develop all sorts of nasties. Um, and it was only with that systematic training that they really realized, you know, <laughs> maybe X-rays aren't the answer for everything. Um, by that time, it was too late for for beauty. Be it mostly fallen out of favour. Uh, X-ray hair removal at that point, um, but it did obviously go on to um, influence how we interact with X-rays today. It is not, you know, I, I don't know the 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 rate, but you're not meant to have more than one X-ray a year or something like that, are you? One or two or whatever it is. It's not a huge amount. You're certainly not meant to go to the beauty salon. Um, every other week for six months um, and use them to remove hair so um, <laughs> yeah it's it's you know these are really sad really sad and really disturbing stories of a time when these things on the surface seemed to work but no one really understood the long-term implications of them Right. And of course, you mentioned radon spas, too. So so a little bit, you know, kind of in moderation was OK. But now we know that, uh, like, say, radon leaks like in houses can be really hmm. dangerous. Yeah. I mean, one thing about the ideas of radium and radioactivity today is there are um, there are conflicting um, schools of thought about what is dangerous and how much radioactivity is dangerous. I mean, the majority of people sort of subscribe to the sort of zero dose, you know, so absolutely no radioactivity outside of background radioactivity that we can't help, you know, is the only way to go forward. Some people believe that a small amount of radium, small amount of radioactivity is safe. Um, it's one, you know, these things aren't totally in the past. Um, I, 
I have been myself to several um, radon spas in, in Europe. So I went to one in the Czech Republic and I went to one in um, Austria, for instance, and they still market themselves as radon spas. So you go the, to them for radium treatments. Um, and they certainly do not subscribe to the idea that no radioactivity is the only way forward. They do believe that small amounts can be beneficial. It's the same argument has been used for the last hundred years that this triggers metabolism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it, it. I think it's. I think it's kind of. I've. I don't know if this is scientifically accurate, but I. I and it might just be something I told my mother once. But um, you know, there's a there's a school of thought that if you have a cigarette. It just one, it sort of gives your lungs something to work towards. You know, it gives them something to do almost. Um, and there is almost, a, uh, there is a school of thought that if you have a tiny bit of radium, radium or radon or whatever it comes in, it's just making your body fight a little bit and that stimulates everything and is therefore beneficial. Um, and these are huge industries. I mean, uh, there's one particular town in, in Czech Republic that I went to called Yakimov. Um, and the whole town is geared up to raid on spas that is literally their only purpose in life wow. um and yeah there's like 11 or 11 or so hotels and people just go there for medical treatments it's a medical spa town um so you know there's quite a few people that do believe that this works that's amazing and uh, and of course there are still some uh, kind of mildly radioactive things that that you can still find even though people threw out like their makeup for example you also mentioned vaseline glass so that mm -hmm. is uh it's one of those little things that i think anybody could kind of overlook but i have this weird connection to vaseline glass so i mentioned my grandparents were antique dealers and yeah. my grandmother was absolutely obsessed with finding vaseline glass so when i was like 10 she taught me how to identify it like without a uv light yeah <laughs> so every time i see it you know i'm like oh well there it is um and you can still find it in antique stores and places like that and they, they do usually have it under uv lights and it doesn't look like something like how you would picture something that's like a hundred years old like when it glows if you've never seen it before um everybody who's listening it is like this psychedelic, like neon glowing green. It's like Cthulhu's tea set, right? It's like so bright. Yeah. Like it's not it's something that you'd imagine coming from like the 1890s. So with Vaseline glass, I always wonder like, is that level low enough that it's actually safe to collect? Or was my grandmother just kind of nuts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 Again, schools of thought. I believe it's absolutely safe to collect. Um, I mean, there's also such a thing as fiesta wear as well, which is um, the the sort of red, primarily like this reddish ceramics that you get um, in the US. Um, these are safe things. Um, there is certain amounts of uh, caution and guidance around them. So, for instance, there's suggestions that you shouldn't use anything uh, like vinegar or anything that leaches um, something out of your glassware or your uh, ceramic ware. Um, you should be careful if it's got any uh, damage to it, so chips or, or cracks or anything like that. But, you know, on, on the whole, this is... This is fairly safe stuff. I mean, we use glass that's got lead mixed into it. Glass, any sort of coloured glass has all sorts of things mixed into it. And we would use those without second thought, really. Again, with that proviso that as long as they're not damaged in, in some way. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think these are beautiful uh, relics of the past.
past. Um, you don't tend to get them anymore. Um, there are still factories that produce the Vaseline glass. That So this is the glass that's mixed with the uranium to make the sort of yellowy green color. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's not quite as popular as it used to be, but it is absolutely beautiful stuff. Yeah, it's, it is. And uh, I, I wanted to ask as well. So the epilogue of your book, really gave me chills it actually kind of scared the heck out of me because of course you mentioned some um some products today that might still have radium in them what are some things that we need to be aware of I don't think there's anything that you need to be scared of but you know I talk about spa towns I talk about water um and for instance uh, so there's a town in in the UK called Buxton uh which in the 1900s was um a really, really popular spa town, it bottled and sold their waters as radium waters. Buxton mineral water is still a massive, massive um, industry and they're sold everywhere. It's You get them given free in newsagents when you buy, you know, buy a newspaper or the other way around now, I think it is. But, you know, you get them all the time. They still use the same water you know it's still from the same place as it used to they've moved their plant they've various things but it, it is still from the same place now there was a reassessment of the of of how much radioactivity is in their water um it's not as strong as they were claiming when they were selling themselves as the radium town and you know like <laughs> lots of hotels were were uh, um the whole industry was a, was around those products um but it is the same water um, and you know, radioactivity is everywhere. It's not. Um, it's not inconceivable that that this water does have radioactivity in it. Again, the the amount of uh, testing that's done, the amount of um, I'm trying to be careful with what I say here. They don't <laughs> necessarily have to admit if they tested their water and it contained a certain under a certain amount of radioactivity. They wouldn't have to admit that. Um, it would be considered a, a trace or an impurity, much in the same way as makeup companies do not have to admit if they're, or even test for, if their products have lead in them, for instance. So wow. these impurities don't need to be acknowledged or tested. So, you know, <laughs> I don't think it's something to be scared of, but I think it's it's fun to think that we think of this as being something that died off at some point in the in the past. But actually, probably a company could bottle water today and decide to call themselves radioactive water. I don't know how much they would sell, but they would probably have a, a claim and a cause to do so if they so chose to. Okay, so on that note, again, the uh, fantastic book is Half-Lives. And I really, I recommend everybody read it because it is just so interesting, even if you're not like a radium nerd like we are. Um, so where can we find more of you and your work? <laughs> well, um, so I have a website, which is uh, LucyJaneSantos.com, which I'm putting together. So I've got loads of things I've been writing, but just not got round to posting. So I'm putting loads of stuff on there at the moment. So I'm doing lots of work on beauty products. So other things that have uh, the beauty context, so like penicillin lipsticks, for instance, like that's been on a little while ago, but I'm also doing some stuff on arsenic and lead and mercury and all sorts of goodies there asbestos in hair dryers uh, oh, asbestos and toothpaste all sorts of things um so i do a lot of that um i also do a lot of talks at the moment um and it's primarily for a north american audience so I, i've been doing with the new york adventure club 
Um, and again, I would highly recommend um, having a look at their online talks because you know, New York Adventure Club sounds like it's just New York, but it's it's not. Um, and they have lots of really interesting and obscure. Well, they have lots of weird people like me doing like quite niche talks for them. Um, so that's really good. So I've got I'm doing loads of those. I'm doing one next week, which is Hollywood nightlife in the 1940s. The week after I'm doing uh, the history of diets. Um, also, one after that's the electric age. So just they just let me do random, random weird nerdy stuff it's fantastic so they're the best places to find me so the website and i'm often on a tuesday night late time here uh talking to new york adventure club about all sorts of things well that sounds so fantastic and guys i should mention uh i have read lucy's blog it is so fantastic so if uh if you guys do like the post that we have on dirty sexy history you are gonna love lucy's blog you've got to check it out so i mean again Thank you so much for being here. This book is just incredible. And this has been just such a fun conversation. We really appreciate it. Lynn, thank you so much for having me. I just love talking about this stuff. Once again, I'd like to thank Lucy Jane Santos for being our guest this week. Her book, again, is Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium, and you can find more about the history of toxic cosmetics and bizarre beauty trends on her blog at lucyjanesantos.com. I'd also like to thank our phenomenal patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at dirtysexyhistory. We'll post photos from today's show on our Instagram, including that great Christmas advert that I mentioned earlier. We have also joined Mastodon at DirtySexyHistory at Toot.Wales, so stop by and say hello. It's a lot of fun. You can also find us and our six years of post archives on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Now, we are going to be off on the 4th for a quick mid-season break to get our ducks in a row for 2023, then we'll be back on the 18th and ready to roll. Have a safe and happy holiday season and a fantastic new year. We love you all so much. See you next time.